0: Amen. If you would, please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 10, Luke 10 verses 17 to 19. Some of you no doubt are familiar with this passage, and if you I'm going to take a quick glance at the passage, and as we think of the holiday season, you might wonder, what in this world does this passage have to do with Christmas? Well, I hope to tell you this morning. Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 17. The 72 returned with joy. That is the 72 disciples of Jesus that returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we wish to... Devote our attention to your word this morning. Lord, and during the holiday season, we might desire or wish to maybe think and contemplate on much more, things we might consider more positive or more lighthearted. Yet here we are, in a passage that speaks of demons and the devil. We might wonder, What does the devil have to do with Christmas? And here in your word, Jesus says that he saw Satan fall like lightning. The fall of Satan is as thunderous and as bright and as dramatic as the lightning bolts that we see in the skies during a thunderstorm. There's something here for us to behold as we give thoughts to the birth of Christ. Lord, would you help us to understand by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you are familiar, I'm sure, with a holiday song, which is, I think it's titled, Good Tidings of Comfort and Joy, or God Rest Ye Gentlemen, I have no idea which one of those titles it is. But it's the song that goes got resty, gentlemen no longer be dismayed, for Christ our Saviour was born this Christmas day to save us all from Satan's power when we were all gone astray. I wonder if you've ever taken the time to slow down and perhaps consider the each lyric of that song, some wonderful things that are embedded in that song. It tells us, "God, rest, ye merry gentlemen." It says it's an expression of desire, an a expression of, a, of a, an intent that you may be rest, given rest. In other words, that you may be, may you be given peace and joy. It continues, "No longer may you be dismayed," and it gives us the ground, right for why, why, or how, or for what reason should we have rest? And be merry and joy because Christ, our Savior, was born. And for what purpose? To save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. So why should we be peaceful and joyful? What accomplishes this? And the song tells us it is the fact that Christ Jesus was born into the world. So, you think about the holiday season, right? We think about merrymaking, you know, joy and laughter and celebrating, getting together with friends and family, going to holiday get togethers and parties, receiving and giving gifts. It is a season where most people want their holiday season to be especially marked with peace and with joy, and rightly so. Not just in the holiday season, but in every season. All men desire peace and joy in their life. The song points us to what makes for true and lasting and enduring peace and joy. And our passage this morning points us to what makes for that enduring and lasting peace and joy, just as that song does as well. So I want to direct our attention to this passage and think of it as coming into the middle of a story. Something is happening within something else that's happening. And so as we think about the story that this tells us, let's begin by following the story from its beginning. So directing our attention to the passage, we see several characters. First, we see the disciples who were sent out earlier by Jesus to to heal people, to cast out demons, and more importantly, they were sent out to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to tell men and women how they might be saved from their sins, to tell them of their, de- their need to be saved from their sins, and pointing to Jesus Christ and the gospel of the kingdom. Because apart from pro- the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the healing and the casting out of demons doesn't really matter all that much. It's of wonderful benefit for this life, but only for this life. So they are sent out to proclaim the gospel. In the passage, we also see the demons as well. It tells us that or they, they come to Jesus proclaiming that even the demons are subject to them. These are the, the harassers of men, the tempters of men, that they are made subject to them. And the word subject here means someone or when, it's, when someone of greater authority puts someone in a subordinate position, And so they're saying that they're going out there and proclaiming the gospel and casting out demons, that even the demons have to listen to them because they are in subordination or made subject, not to them, not to the disciples, because they say that they are doing so. These demons are made subject in the name of Christ, so they are made subject because of Christ. So when Christ has sent them out to proclaim the gospel, they go with the presence of Christ and with the authority of Christ We see also in the passage, Jesus, of course. He is the one who sends out the disciples to proclaim the gospel. They would have no authority apart from Jesus Christ and his sending them out. Then we have one more character here, and that is Satan, or the Satan, because Satan is a title, meaning the accuser. And he's the chief harasser of men, the chief accuser of men. So we see that the demons are made subject to the authority of Jesus Christ. And we also see that what Jesus says about Satan, that he saw Satan fall like lightning. It's dramatic. It's instant. It happens quickly. It's even kind of a spectacle. So in and and narrowing our focus here, we need to broaden bring the telescope in and broaden our horizon to better understand the story that is happening or that's being told to us. And we need to also take into consideration what the Scriptures collectively say about some of these characters, namely Jesus Christ and also the devil. According to the scriptures, we know him most by what he does. According to Revelation 12.9, that he is the great deceiver. Luke 8.30, that he assaults people. Matthew 4.3, we see that he tempts people. 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us that he is the one who blinds people to the truth so they might not see the reality of God in Christ. Again, Revelation 12.9 describes him as a dragon which denotes his wrath. Genesis 3.1 says, it says that he is a serpent to denote his subtlety. First Peter 5.8 describes him as a lion, which denotes his strength. So what we see from the Scriptures is that this is a very powerful enemy. And when we continue to broaden our horizon, we also see from the storyline of Scripture that he is there in the beginning of the story. When man was created in the image of God, and he inserts himself in the Garden of Eden and tempts Adam and Eve to sin against God. And so what we see from the very beginning is that he means to conquer, but not by brute strength, but by subtlety, by cunning, by trickery, by lying, by tempting, by the use of words. And his a great scheme in the beginning and continues to be so to this day is to deceive men in order that they might see not him as an enemy, but instead see God as an enemy. An enemy of joy, an enemy of peace. He entices men to fight not against himself, but entices men instead to fight against God and horizontally against one another. And so we see from the very beginning, from the storyline of Scripture, this tension that's there in the story. And it's a tension that demands and that begs to be resolved. Now, every story has its tension. And so we see in the beginning, when the serpent, that is the devil, comes into the garden and tempts Adam and Eve and says, Wait, did God really say you shall not eat of this fruit. And he goes on to say that God knows that if you eat of this fruit, you will become like God, which they don't end up becoming like God. But with these enticing and flavorful words, they are persuaded to take of the fruit that is forbidden, and they sin against God. They eat of the fruit. And then immediately after, God finds Adam and Eve and confronts them and brings curses upon man and woman, beginning with the serpent. And in Genesis 3.15, the Lord says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The word enmity there is used only one other time in the original language of the Old Testament, and it just means this hostility, this animosity. It's like enemy combatants against one another. And so, that, and so in other words, God is saying that there will be this perpetual and enduring tension between the devil and his minions and the woman and her offspring. But embedded in this curse, he also Has a promise, a promise of a relief to this tension. He says that he, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That even as the seed of the woman crushes the head of the serpent, it will strike at the heel. So, what we see here is this promise of this conflict finding its resolution, the tension finally being resolved. And if we continue to follow the storyline of Scripture, we see something over and over and over again. And that is conflict, one after another after another. But what we also see is that there are these great sovereigns who are decimated. We see men conquering their enemies. We see courageous women overcoming insurmountable obstacles. We see God's people reigning over their foes time and again. We see kings battling with might and vigor and strength and conquering their enemies. We see the power of God displayed time and time again over His enemies and over the enemies of His people. We see prophets waging war against the sins of the world and the paganism of the world. We see the Lord doing things that are impossible time and time again. What we see over and over from the beginning pages of the Old Testament is conflict and then Tension being resolved and God making rest for his people and making a way for his people to no longer be dismayed. Yet, we also read that this relief and this ease and this peace doesn't last very long, it's temporary. And so then the agonizing question from the very beginning when the promise is introduced in the midst of this conflict and tension and this nagging question that we continue to or should continue to see throughout the storyline of Scripture is the question of when. When will we have an enduring peace? When will the conflict end? When will the promise seed come? When will the serpent's head be crushed? When will God's people finally and decisively be delivered? When will they be set free from Satan's dominion? There's this constant longing for the tension to be relieved. And we know this tension, we feel this tension at times in our lives. We hate this tension. We, we agonize over this tension. This, when we feel this tension, we are, we are woken up at night. We can't sleep. We cannot eat at times. We cannot enjoy the things that we want to enjoy because there's this tension in our lives, because perhaps there's tension with somebody that we love. Perhaps there's something wrong at work. Perhaps there's something that we did that we wish that we could take back. And So we ask ourselves, when? When will there be relief? So, this is the tension that we read in the scriptures time and time and time again. And it's a tension that is still there today. And it it's there, right, for those who are apart from Christ, for those who don't believe in Christ, that tension is there. Although the tension is suppressed in unrighteousness, that's why you might not feel the tension yourself. But in suffering, in conflicts, whether at work or at home, the trials that one faces, essentially anything that produces tension serves as a reminder that there is something wrong with the world. So in tracing the fall or the storyline of Scripture, from the very beginning we see that there is this tension And it is this tension that we also read here in the passage in Luke. And it's a tension that has everything to do with the story of Christmas. So then, following from its beginning, secondly, is continue to follow the story to its relief. As we consider this tension, as we consider this perpetual conflict, this conflict that has its beginning with the devil, we begin to see what exactly does the devil have to do with Christmas. In First John, the second half of that passage, it tells us exactly what the devil has to do with Christmas. For there, First John tells us that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That word destroy, there is used only one other time in the original language, and that is in John chapter 2, when Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple. He says, if you destroy this temple in three days, I will build it up again. But you tend this temple toppling down one stone upon another. It's the same idea here. The temple is no use to anybody if it's just in stone upon another, destroyed. And in the same way God or Christ has come to render the works of the devil utterly useless. So given this tension that is begs to be relieved, given the great enemy to be destroyed, given the incredible feats that we read of in the Scriptures time and time again of God doing the impossible, we might have expected something more, more spectacular, perhaps, with the coming of the promised one. With the promised seed, perhaps something more spectacular than the Exodus. We might have perhaps expected something more dramatic than the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. We might have expected something more stunning than the toppling of the walls of Jericho. But with the promised seed and the promise of relief, that's not exactly what we get. Instead, here's what we have in Luke 1:26. And bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So the promised seed is announced. That he's coming, the one to relieve the conflict. We might ask what makes this one different in the prophets and the leaders and the kings who have come before, who also seem to have secured peace and tranquility for their people, and yet it never lasted very long. How does he secure this victory? Now, let us not think for a moment that the promised seed's interest in the world is not as spectacular as the things that we read of in the storyline of Scripture. I mean, just think, just ponder for a moment what this means for the world and what God is doing for the world. This is God the Son incarnate come into the world. This is actually much more spectacular than the events and the miracles that we read of in the Exodus much more glorious than the prophet, uh, prophet of Elijah coming against the prophets of Baal and anything else that we read in the scriptures. This is God the Son coming into the world, born just like you and I are into this world, living just like you and I do in this world, and yet at the same time fully divine. This is an incredible miracle that God has done. God is doing the impossible by sending his son into the world to die for the sins of his people. He doesn't come in the way that others might expect. King Herod expected a king like himself when he heard that a king has been born. But Jesus was not that. The religious teachers of the day expected a political figure, somebody who would deliver them from Roman rule that would lead them to be their own prosperous people, a prosperous nation, their own autonomy and sovereignty. In a way, you could say that they were expecting a new exodus. But Jesus, the promised seed, doesn't meet any of those expectations. Instead, as we continue with the storyline of Scripture and read of the ministry of Jesus Christ, we see that He has come to break the shackles that keep men bound to sin. To release people from the sway of the devil to set free those who are imprisoned in the dark cells of Lucifer, to grant them forgiveness, to grant them mercy, to grant them eternal life, to lead people to a better land, not the kind of land you can find in this world, but to the land of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus did come to bring about a new exodus, and that is an exodus from slavery to sin and Satan. And he would accomplish this, not by becoming a political figure, not by becoming a king in man's image, and meeting man's expectations, but instead he accomplishes this by dying. And it is at the cross where Jesus, as the Son of God, most manifests himself. And throughout his ministry, through all the different miracles, through his teaching, his casting out of demons, and providing for the needy and hungry, in all these ways, Jesus was declaring to the world that he is, in fact, the Son of God. But that is not where he would most show himself to be the Son of God. But it was actually at the cross. In John 13, Jesus points us in that direction when after judas had betrayed jesus and leaves the company of the disciples it says in john 13:31 when judas had gone out jesus said now now is the son of god or the son of man glorified and god is glorified in him if god is glorified in him god will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once from that moment on god would be or god would most glorify his son and jesus would be most glorified through his betrayal, through his agonizing in the garden, and as he was delivered over and crucified to the cross. Even one of the Roman soldiers at that time, as he beheld the Son of God crucified to the cross, could not help but admit that truly this was the Son of God. The great relief to the tension of the story finds its relief through the story's greatest and heaviest moment of tension, and that is when the promised seed is crucified to a wooden cross. It's in this way that we see that the tension of the story that we read in the Scriptures certainly has to do with the tension between man and the devil and God and Satan, but we see also that there's a tension behind the tension And that tension behind the tension is the tension between God and man. Because the sin of Adam and Eve was not just a sin against one another, but it was a sin against God. And all sins are against God. And so with that tension, it begs to be resolved. And the only way that that tension is relieved is by Jesus Christ the promised seed hanging on the cross to take the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins. Romans 3, 20 t, excuse me, tells us, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Jesus was put forward on our behalf to absorb the wrath of God and thereby relieving the tension that there was between us and God because of our sins. And in this way, God destroys the works of the devil. And in this way, Jesus destroys the most powerful weapon in the devil's armory, and that is his power or his weapon of accusation. That is his title. He is the great accuser. His job, his aim is to accuse people before the throne of God and point out to the sin and the guilt and the shame of men. But the way in which the promised seed destroys that particular work is by placing Christ's righteousness upon us so that the devil has no grounds of accusation. He's got no bullets in his gun. It's empty. He has nothing to bring to our charge or against us before the throne of God because by faith, we wear the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Then having followed the story from its beginning and then to its relief, Jesus Christ, through His work on the cross, has also secured for us the concluding chapters of the story, and they are wonderful, and they are marked with peace and joy, and they are glorious, they're secured, they're there for us. But now it's our job to continue to thoroughly follow the story from or to its conclusion. And so what does this look like? What does it look like for us today to continue to follow the story to its conclusion, Well, what we do, or we're called to do, is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We proclaim Jesus. We proclaim the kingdom. We proclaim the message that has been entrusted to us. We declare the message of salvation to those who live in a state of tension because of their sins against God. Listen, if you are apart from Christ this morning, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that there is this this tension in your life that you may not feel, but it is there because of your sins against God. And the Bible tells us that God demands for that tension to be relieved. And if it's not relieved in Jesus Christ, it is relieved through eternal punishment. That is why as a church we are called to proclaim God's gift to the world and that is the gift of Jesus Christ who's come to relieve that tension. And so we proclaim, we declare. Matthew twenty-four, fourteen, says, in this gospel the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Our part now in this great story and our part in helping to bring or move the story along is to continue to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and compel men to believe in Jesus and trust their life to Christ so that they might be saved from their sins. The Bible says that in Corinthians that we are ambassadors for Christ, that God, through us, making his appeal to man to be reconciled to God. That is our task, that is our job, that is our responsibility, that is also our joy, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And sadly, we live in a state and an age where most people don't quite care to think about God, where once we could have a conversation, there would be a category in people's minds of of the subject of God, whereas today, most people honestly do not care. And while our words and our declaration sometimes may fall thin or may fall short or may fall on deaf ears, we have something else that is powerful at our disposal that we ought to employ, and that is the power of prayer. We must pray fervently for the salvation of sinners. We must pray for our co-workers. We must pray for our family members. We must pray for our friends. We must pray that people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that they might know Him, that they might embrace Jesus as their Savior. That they may come to grips and pierce by the word of the gospel and call out to Jesus for their salvation. We must salt our gospel proclamation with prayer. As we continue to follow the story to its conclusion, let us also not neglect the Meeting together. One of the great joys of meeting and coming together as God's people, whether it's here on Sunday mornings or in a community group, and when you go out and gather together with one another, one of the things that it does, it declares loudly and clearly to the devil that, he has been, that his works have been rendered useless. That he is not victorious. That he is a conquered enemy. And so as we hear the preached word, as we proclaim the songs of the excellence of Christ through song, and as we pray together, we are boldly declaring that the enemy has been defeated. The, the kingdom of heaven did not leave with Jesus when he ascended unto heaven after he resurrected from the grave. But the kingdom of heaven is still here through the presence of Christ's church. The church is like an embassy in a foreign land that's still under the sway and the power of the devil. So we gather together as an embassy for encouragement, for strengthening, and as a way also to compel others to come and seek refuge, and seek safety, and seek comfort through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church is an ever-present reminder that Christ is King and Lord of all and that His presence still remains here on earth, the gathering of God's people. Ephesians 1.22 says that He, that is God, put all things under the feet of Christ and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. We are the body of Christ, and Christ is our head. And all things have been made subject to the feet of Jesus Christ. And so we have with us the authority and the presence of Christ, just as Jesus sent out the 72 disciples with his authority and with his presence. So we also bear the authority and the presence of Christ. So you continue to follow the story of Scripture to its conclusion. What then? Now that Satan has been defeated, what is his role now in the life of the believer? Well, Satan functions now as your polisher. Second Corinthians twelve seven, the apostle Paul writes, "So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me." For what purpose? To keep me from becoming conceited. In other words, it's to keep him humble. We believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are born again. We are regenerated. No longer are we under the sway and power of the devil, but we have been made new. Now we are under the freedom of Jesus Christ. But it does not mean that we are perfect. Right? You know this from experience. We still at times struggle with sin our faith still needs some some polishing, and sometimes the Lord uses sin as a way to polish us, as a sort of a rag to polish the imperfections and the scruff marks on the metal or the gold of our faith. But sometimes God needs to take needs to take much more drastic measures. A diamond tear is somebody who, or diamond tear, diamond tear, I'm not sure how you pronounce that word, but it's somebody who specializes in diamonds. When you find a diamond, it's, there's no shape to it. But someone, as someone who specializes, an expert in diamonds, has to take the diamond and somehow fashion it and shape it so that to get it, it's shaped the shape that you see when you go to a jeweler. And so what they have to do is to take the diamond and take it to a spinning wheel covered in diamond dust, and they take the diamond and put it to the spinning wheel in order to shape it, to give it the shape that you and I are used to seeing. So in a way, you could say that God uses Satan as the one who polishes, as a spinning wheel, to buff out, to perfect, to give shape to the diamond of your faith so that he one day will present the diamond of your faith in perfection. And that tension between the diamond and the spinning wheel, sometimes that's our trials, sometimes that's our suffering, sometimes that's our affliction, that God will even at times permit the devil to use. But we know from Scriptures, we know from 2 Corinthians 12 and what Paul says concerning his story in the flesh, we know from Romans where it says that God works all things for the good of those who love him, that ultimately it is intended for your good and that they are intended to polish the diamond of your faith. As we continue to follow the story to its conclusion, we also should not allow ourselves to be distracted by the luster of the devil's goods. And he has many goods. He has many things to offer God's people. He has a lot of pretty things. I mean, he even tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness and offered Him the kingdoms and the world if you would only bow to the devil. He has a lot of things to try to entice us and to get us to move a little bit more and a little bit more away from Christ. Roland Hill was a popular and evangelical preacher, he came to a low point in his ministry for a few months in the midst of his ministerial career. He was incredibly disappointed with a lack of fruit in his ministry. Now one day he looked out in his study outside his window and he saw a farmer going to market. And to his amazement, he had, a, a, he had some pigs following him. And the pigs continued to follow this farmer all the way to the slaughterhouse when he later saw the farmer emerge from the slaughterhouse without the pigs, well, Roland went to the farmer and he said to him, how did you get those pigs to follow you to their own death? I cannot even get people to follow Christ to their eternal life. And the farmer replied, didn't you see as I walked along the road that out of my pocket I would take some crumbs and put it out on the road every now and then? And in this way, the pigs Followed me over to the death, in the same way the devil seeks to persuade us and tempts us and t- entice us by giving us little crumbs of the world, these a lot of pretty things and even a lot of good things that he means to entice us with in an effort to guide us to go a little bit inch a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, further and further away from Christ in the way in which we can protect ourselves from the devil's schemes, is to continue to prize Christ. Jesus is the great treasure of the gospel. Jesus is the great treasure of the church. Jesus is the great treasure of the Christian. For in Jesus, the promised seed, we have relief from this tension because of our sins before God. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is the one who absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. Jesus is the one who gives to us his righteousness so that the devil has no longer any reason to accuse us before the throne of God. And so we must keep our eyes on Jesus Christ and fix our eyes on the Lord, because in Jesus we have true and lasting and permanent and enduring peace and joy and satisfaction not in the things of the world, not in the pleasures of the world. And lastly, as we continue to follow the story to its conclusion, be assured of God's love. According to the scriptures, it's a place for introspection. The Bible commands us to examine ourselves, to make sure that we are in the faith, to make sure that our lives are producing fruit. It's intended to be a means of grace, not intended to be a means of judgment or to place judgment upon yourself. But it's a way to, for you to make sure that you are growing in your love for the Lord and His people. But, We can go too far. One of the devil's schemes and strategies is to get us to, to a place where we even doubt our own salvation if we felt we have given our lives to Christ. And how might he do this? By enticing us or convincing us in a way in which we might be too introspective introspective, excuse me, and focus too much on ourselves. Instead of focusing on Christ, what the devil will try to do instead is to put a mirror between you and Christ so that all that you are beholding is yourself. And all you see then is all your imperfections, all your weaknesses, all of your sins, all the ways that you fail to measure up and all the ways that you are unworthy. And it is true that we are unworthy of Christ and God that is why we turn to Christ. For every look that we take in the mirror, we should be taking ten looks to Christ. Because if we continue to look at ourselves and only at ourselves, then then, then it is no wonder that we might be filled with doubt. John three fourteen, Jesus in the the gospel says, And as most lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Lifted up, why? So that all men might see their salvation. This is the King James Version. It's somewhere in Isaiah where it says, Look unto me, the Lord says, look unto me and be saved. That is what we're called to do as we continue to follow this storyline of Scripture to its conclusion. As the devil tries to put this mirror before us, between us and God, No, what we need to do is take ten looks to Christ. Look unto me, the Lord says. Look and look and look to Jesus Christ. Why? Because that is where our sufficiency comes from. Not in ourselves, but it comes from Christ. We are not sufficient to save ourselves. We are already pretty good at condemning ourselves and criticizing ourselves and judging ourselves. No, we must look to Christ because Christ is, It's the one who has saved us from condemnation and judgment and the devil's accusations. So the great tensions of the story of the Bible find their ease and relief and peace in Christ. And it is a story that is not just outside of us, but it is a story that has everything to do with us. For we were once separated from God by our sins but Christ Jesus was born into the world in order to bring us to God by dying on the cross for our sins. And in this way, only through the gospel, only through Christ, can we actually be made merry and be giving this enduring and lasting peace that we can have today, now, until the end of the story, and forever after that. Let's pray. Lord, you're. Lord, now we can see, we can see for ourselves Satan fall like lightning because of what you have done on the cross on our behalf. The great accuser is destroyed. He has been defeated. And while he may be permitted to go about his way, he does so on a leash. For on the cross you crushed the head of the serpent you have rendered his most powerful work useless. Now we have nothing to fear when we, come, when we come before your presence, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. So Lord, help us with confidence to continue to approach your throne of grace, to be confident in your great and abiding love for us. Help us to not be tempted by the good things that the devil might tempt us with. Help us to declare the victory of Christ as we come together. Help us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who have yet to believe. Help us, guide us, Lord, As we give thought to the holiday season, may our minds also quickly go to the cross and remember what Christ has done. And from that, may our hearts be filled with joy, and gratitude, and peace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.